Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode, episode 22. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, how's it going this week, man? How do you get to be the co the, the host, Josh, and you're gone like every other week? Last week, I don't know where you were, but you're the host, and then you you, you skip every other episode. Tell me, yeah. so so let's uh, so where were you last week? Were you in Fiji, Hawaii, uh, California? I, where were I, you? I tuned into the show and listened. Uh, you did a good job, by the way. I tuned in and listened, uh, and you had said I was like in Tahiti or something like that. But uh, actually, we uh, we got some big news. We found out. A couple of weeks ago, we were pregnant, and uh, we found out Friday that we were having a little boy. So uh, that's where we were. We were at the doctor, and uh, got some got some exciting news. This will be our fourth. Well, congratulations, congratulations! Um, and I guess since it's a boy, we're going to name it after your co-host Ryan Ray, right? That's, is that where we're <laughs> are we breaking that news today on the Texas and Gas podcast? Well, you helped me break that news to my wife. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> she doesn't listen to the show. She'll never know. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Well, um, wanted to quickly draw your attention to uh, globalenergymedia.com slash jobs updates every Monday morning uh, with new jobs posted. Uh, Ryan, there's a few few things we wanted to note. Uh, yeah, some yeah. events that are going to be coming up. Yep. I um, Next week, I will be at NAEP, which is the 16th and 17th. Don't worry. We'll be back. Unlike Josh, I'll be back next Friday for the for the. Uh, for the uh, podcast on Friday. And then there's a bunch of other events, Josh, that are coming up here in Texas. And so it's a great time. You've got the Doug Eagleford the 29th and the 30th of August. And then in September, there's uh, a Doug conference here in this right, right, right outside where I'm at in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, there's an uh, Internet of Things conference in Houston. Um, there is all kinds of stuff. There's a Doug Mid-Continent in Oklahoma City. Uh, and then there's the Roseland Oil and Gas, which actually the Roseland folks will be on here in a few weeks. Um, to tell us about what's going on there in Midland in October. So there's a bunch of events. Um, Doug's got a Permian event as well in, I think it's November. And so a lot going on in Texas oil and gas uh, conferences. And and these aren't just you know midstream or just producing. There is frac sand conferences, tube conferences. So wherever you're at in the oil and gas business, um, you can find a conference for you over the next few months and to figure out what's going to go on, what's going to go on hopefully uh, as we go into 2018. Awesome, awesome. You got a you got a busy couple of couple of months coming up right yeah I'll, the, I'll be on the road and you'll be at the beach yeah, story of my life <laughs> I wish, man. well uh we got a couple articles we want to jump into today before one of our guests uh david comes on so uh ryan's just jumping right in we have an interesting article uh from standard times uh, west texas rail upgrades critical for oil and gas industry it has here that a seven million dollar federal grant will be used to rebuild an international rail bridge uh, on the border, and uh, it it looks like a, a pretty big deal. It's gonna it's gonna help make some of this transportation a little bit safer and more efficient. Yeah, you know, I, I read this, Josh, and it, it's one of those things where um, you know we've been talking on the show about the FERC appointments and how they've been kind of holding up pipelines that cross the um, the border here. But um, this this project's a go. It looks like seven million dollar grant, and uh, unfortunately Sergio can't come on this week. But maybe next week we can get him on to talk about the impact there. You know, one of the things we've we've talked about. Um, you know, it's been, I don't know, we're in episode 22 now. So early on, we were mentioning that if you're looking at the Permian um, um, and what's, what's, what, what's available there as far as pipelines and infrastructure and facilities and stuff like that and, and how easy it is to get to those, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a lot better than like a Balkan area. Well, now what we 
we're seeing is, and this isn't the first article I've seen that, that kind of points to this, that maybe the infrastructure is getting a little bit congested. And so an article, um, so if you can't, you know, if you can't put it in a pipeline, then you got to put it on a train for all. And so I don't, I don't know how congested the area is. I was curious. I would love to see a response because sometimes the, the, the counter to that is, well, maybe it's not that congested, but, um, a, you know, a congressman or a state senator or some, or a congressional, you know, some kind of in, in, in politics went out and got the grant for the railroad saying that it is congested. But either way, having the railroad updated and built, um, would be a good thing for the economy, and if there is an over, if there is an overcrowding of the pipelines in that area, you know it, it is a good quick way to transport the product. It's not the most efficient way, obviously, but it is it is a potential way to do it. Yeah, just looking uh, like like you mentioned, there's been this congestion of uh, of transportation there. It's uh, one of the one of the comments here is uh, the Presidio Bridge is a critical project to increase jobs and investment in the Permian Basin in Texas, and it, it goes on to say that it uh, that they've. See, the cross-border trade is the lifeblood of many communities in my district. It was this uh, guy named Hurd, and his uh, his district includes over 800 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, it's just a, a lot right, of trade, a right. lot of transportation. Right, and so, you know, that there, there's kind of what I was alluding to earlier, uh, U.S. Congressman Will Hurd. And so you know, it's one of those things where, you know, they're getting they're getting money to get it done, and— um, you know what, what? You know how much is it needed compared to the oil and gas part of things? I, I don't really know. I would love to hear, um, you know, uh, Sergio kind of talk about this. And uh, but regardless, it's it's one of those things that you say, well, maybe we don't need it now, but we could need it here in two, three, four, five years. Obviously, these railroads have a you know very long life expectancy. So regardless of how critical it is right now, it is a good thing for the long term stability of the area. If you need to get a quick, um, you know, get some quick barrels per se over the border. Yeah, and uh, I forgot to mention this. Uh, one of the, the basis for the grant was uh, in 2008, the bridge was shut down because of fire, uh, and a bad fire that caused the, the bridge to be shut right. down. So right. they're getting it back up and operational. Well, moving on to uh, our next article, Ryan, we have uh, some news from Simerex Energy on track for $700 million Permian spending in 2017. I thought this was a pretty interesting article. Uh, Simerex obviously is doing good even with – some of the volatility in the market and uh, looks interesting. Yeah, and the big thing here, Josh, is that um, a lot of the second quarter reports have come out now, and uh, I think almost all of them are probably out now, actually, by the time we record this. But um, they've, they've come out, and you start to see that some companies are doing well, some companies aren't doing so well. The interesting thing I took, there's just a, a lot to take away from this, um, and we'll link to it, obviously, in the show notes for the listeners. But the first thing is is that if you look at what Simerex was last year, uh, in the second quarter, they took a loss of $214 million. And so they've turned that around within a calendar year, and that's a big thing. So whatever they were doing last year um, wasn't working right it wasn't working they were spending too much money they weren't making money just you know it just wasn't working and so within a year they've been able to turn it around and the thing that was impressing uh, impressive to me was is that they're doing it it says um from their cash flow and their cash on hand a lot of these shell producers have credit lines and um and so if you have a credit line then you know you've got interest to pay there, there's all these other things that start to come into play when you have uh, when you're dependent rather on a credit line and so if you have cash on hand and you're working off cash flow your business model can be a lot different now you can't be as aggressive obviously because you don't just have money sitting in the bank that you can pull um, at will you only have what you have right you just can't go and tap into this credit line so your business model is a little different um, but it was it was interesting to see that Simrex has been able to turn around and if you look at some of their projections towards the end of the year um, really they're expected to uh, grow their production um, by 30 to 35 percent over uh, in, in the fourth quarter of 17 compared to f- uh, the fourth quarter of 16. If they do that, then you know 18 could really be a big year for them. Mm, yeah, yeah. I and mean, looking at the percentages, I mean, uh, 
they're they're up uh, from quarter two last year. They're nineteen percent. Uh, quarter one they were up eleven percent. So it went from eleven percent to nineteen percent. It's probably going to hit twenty five in the third quarter. And like you said, they're projecting thirty five percent in the fourth quarter. So right. Uh, and, and and just a side note here, Josh. Um, a lot of our listeners obviously are in Texas, but we have folks outside of Texas as well. Um, and so just so you know that fifty three fifty three percent of their budget was directed to the Permian, and the other forty five percent was directed to the Mid Continent. So if you're not not only if you're in Texas in the Permian, but if you're working the Mid Continent, uh, if that's a, if that's one of your plays that you're 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 pursuing or you're in, and you're not dealing with Simrex, well, it looks like they're 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 doing well. Um, they balance their budget out. They're making profit and they're working off cash. Uh, those are all good things. And so you might want to go in, and uh, and pursue some of that Mid Continent work as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Keep an eye on the on, on the company. We have uh, one article I wanted to just kind of touch on. Uh, not really going to go into it. Uh, a company called Goodnight Midstream expands in, in to the Eagleford with the acquisition of White Water Solutions. Uh, this is a Dallas-based company. Uh, they have a decent acquisition. Uh, we'll put this in the show notes just in case anyone wants to go and check it out. Absolutely. And um, one more thing before David Blackman um, comes on the program here in just a second is our question of the day. I forgot to do that earlier. Let's go and get that in there now. Question of the day. Are you encouraged by companies that are working off of cash like Simerex, or do you think that these companies that are working off of um, credit lines are going to be able to withstand these kind of market swings? Ryan at GlobalEnergyMedia.com would love to hear your thoughts on that, the cash versus the the credit line debate. Where do you come in on it? Ryan at GlobalEnergyMedia.com. Uh, let, let us know. All right. Our guest, David Blackman, is coming back on the show this week. David, what's up, buddy? How's it going? Doing well, man. It's a beautiful day up here in North Texas. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, David, last week you you were on the road and couldn't join us. And, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about two weeks ago um, after I think you got off was uh, with Sergio about the FERC appointments. The FERC appointments came back the following week. And the only thing that I could attribute was uh, you and Sergio coming on the show and President Trump must be devout followers to the Texas Long Gas Podcast because of guests like you. So I just wanted to want to give That's you kudos. That's I figure it, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and not so good news for the oil and gas industry, uh, Pioneer stock has just taken a beating. And we've kind of talked about it on the show a few times and wanted to get into it. What's going on with Pioneer? Because it kind of sounded like I listened to the to their their, their second quarter call, and it, it sounded like they were trying to spin a really positive message, and then all of a sudden their, their stock just has plummeted. What's going yeah. on there? Well, it's just I'm I, to me it's it's kind of a silly thing to be honest with you. Uh, they had fine results, um, but what seems to to have set off fear in the market was this talk about uh, or I guess the disclosure that the their wells that they're drilling in some parts of the Permian Basin, not all their stuff, but some of the wells are drilling. Uh, they're ending up with more natu- a higher percentage of natural gas content than they had anticipated. And, um, you know, instead of, for example, 90% oil and 10% natural gas wells, they're drilling wells, you know, might have 70% oil and 30% gas. And they're still oil wells. They're still high-producing wells and very profitable wells. Uh, but the market had bet, I guess, some of these institutional investors had you know, invested with the company uh, on the understanding that these Permian wells were going to be heavy in oil and, and light in natural gas or lighter in natural gas than they're turning out to be. So there's a concern about the mix there. And that just, you know how the market goes, man. Right. It's just so crazy. Um, you know, just, I mean, you have this one thing and somebody gets 
scared of it and you have this herd mentality that goes on but i think you know i think it's a great company and and their stock will recover you know it kind of seemed that one of the things um was at least some of the articles that were coming out were you know the the golden child has fallen or i don't want an exact title but stuff along (laughs) those lines and it kind of seemed like um folks were kind of piling on pioneer because they've been touted as you know, as as this great giant in the in the in the uh, shell revolution, and now, like you're saying, some of these mixed results, and it, it, it looked like maybe it was just a reason to pile on more than there was any substance to it. Yeah, and you know, I mean, and it also came about. We have to also realize it came about at a time when the price for crude oil was was weakening. You right. know, the, the market itself was just jittery over oil. Period, and the natural gas price was sliding. You know, down from. It had gotten up to about three dollars and ten cents in the early part of July, and it kind of fallen down into the two eighty range. So I think it also just had a, it was a combination of all these factors, you know, with with the prices weakening up and 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 then this jitteriness about the 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 product mixed in some of these wells. But I mean, golly, uh, we have so many bullish signs now for for oil and gas prices. Frankly, um, I, I suspect we'll see that stock start to recover very quickly. Right, right. Well, you mentioned natural gas. Let's get into it. Um, oilprice.com is where we're going to be today with two articles, one from uh, another author and then one from yourself. Um, what's going on with the LNG market in the U.S.? There's there's a lot of buzz about it right now. Um, what can you tell us about uh, the current state of LNG and where it's going to be as far as uh, exporting in the future? Yeah, you know, well, I mean, where we are just in the immediate <clears throat> time frame is, is Chenier, of course, remains the one active LNG export facility that we have, but they're about to finish their fourth train uh, in that facility. And uh, we're already uh, becoming a net exporter of natural gas, i.e. We, we now export more natural gas than we import, thanks to all these this ramp up in LNG exports. Plus, you know, we built some more pipelines into Mexico to supply northern Mexico with natural gas as well. Um, but we're going to have three more export terminals, very significant, big export terminals come online between now and the start of 2019, if all goes to plan. And my goodness, we're going to be exporting so much natural gas a year from now, it's just hard to imagine. So you combine that with the fact that we also have, over the next uh, three years, we're going to have 150 at least that's that's what the plans are, 150 additional natural gas-fired power generating plants that are going to come online, uh, 90 megawatt hours of, 90,000, excuse me, megawatt hours of, 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 of power producing capacity fired by natural gas. And so you have all this demand. Oh, and hey, let's don't forget, we have billions and billions of dollars being invested right now today in new plants, uh, chemical plants and fertilizer plants and other manufacturing plants that use natural gas as a feedstock. The demand for this product is rapidly ramping up in this country. And, you know, that's it's it's going to cause an uptick in the price and, a, and an increase in drilling for natural gas in the coming years. So, you know, frankly, I, I, I'm not really sure. Of course, the market takes mainly a short-term view. And, and right. when they look... Pioneer, you know, they're not looking at all these very bullish factors uh, coming about for natural gas and the future of natural gas prices. But man, future is very bright for for United States natural gas. 
Well, you mentioned um, Chenier there, and it's it's interesting because you know how well they've done, but they almost you know they almost just completely fell apart when they were getting into this business, you know, whatever it was yeah. a decade ago. And so we look at it now, we go, man, we're going to be on top. It's funny to think that if they would have failed, um, and you know they just you know the, the market shifted so quickly on them, and it's mm-hmm. kudos to them to be able to adapt so quickly. But if they would have failed, I wonder where the U.S. would be right now. I think we would probably wouldn't be nearly in the spot that we are. It's kind of Chenier probably doesn't get enough credit. No, they. I don't think they do. And, you, you know, it wasn't just Chenier that got caught off guard back in the mid-2000s. Uh, right. Um, you know, with the shift, when we started with the advent of the Haynesville and the Marcellus Shale and all that natural gas suddenly we're producing from shale, uh, it completely turned the market around. I, I participated, uh, chaired a committee in... Uh, a National Petroleum Council study on natural gas in 2003, which was a study that was commissioned by the Secretary of Energy at the time. And uh, we produced a report that, you know, expressed the belief that the United States was going to be, you know, short of natural gas supply going, you know, for the future. I mean, we were we we're going to be unable to meet the country's needs with domestic production, period. Uh, all the big plays, you know, were on the decline, and, and yeah, the Barnett Shale was there, but at that point, no one had started drilling in the Marcellus or the Haynesville. Right. And so Exxon, at the end of that study, when that study came out, Exxon Mobil tied up about 60% of the world's shipbuilding facilities globally to build a new fleet of LNG tankers. And Exxon and Shell and, and a bunch of other companies jumped in to build LNG import facilities, just like Chenier was doing, uh, because we all thought we were going to have to import a big portion of our natural gas usage into this country. And that all changed in a period of like three years. Boom. All of a sudden, we've got a surplus of natural gas. The prices collapsed. And so it it didn't just catch Chenier off guard. It caught everybody off guard, man. But it's, it's just amazing how rapidly that all changed, you know, thanks to... Thanks to hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying senior was they were building these terminals that were going to go one way and then they had to, rever- had to reverse it. Right, it, exactly. It, it, yeah. yeah, no, and, and you know, I was with Shell in 2006, 2007. Shell was spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to to get just to get the permits in place to build a, a, a natural gas import facility up near Boston, you know, or off of Long Island, actually. It wasn't near Boston. And, you know, Exxon was trying to build three of them here in the U.S. as well. And, you know, I mean, it just it was a whole industry, you know, building these these terminals for the gas to go the wrong way, as it turned out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And for those listeners who are interested in just kind of a, a good overview of this would be the Frackers by Gregory Zuckerman. We'll link to the book in oh, the yeah. show notes. I, it's a fan. I, I loved it because like you, I was working for Chesapeake and other companies and, um, you know, when you're in the middle of it, like right now, we're in the middle of this, and you can only see so much. And, you know, you can only right. read so many news stories and listen to many podcasts, and you don't really understand all the dynamics. And then some reporter like Gregory, who's really good, top of his game, goes back really and kind good. of, yeah, he, he compiles all these stories, and you read it, and you're like, okay. Like I, like some of the some of the stuff in the book, I remember when that happened. I didn't know why mm-hmm. it was happening. I didn't understand what uh, maybe Aubrey was doing. I knew we were hearing working inside as a contractor for uh, Chesapeake, but I didn't understand all of it. Now looking back, like oh wow, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And so yeah, uh, it all made sense at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so it, yeah, so it's a it's an outstanding book. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, but let's let's get on to your article uh, at oldprice.com, where you are obviously a contributor. Um, 
So you're getting into something in, um, that I, I, I'm not really sure even how to kind of open this because it's something <laughs> that you don't, you, don't, you don't hear about a lot, right? And, right. Um, right? and so kind of set the table for us. What even made you write this article, and why did you go there? Well, I got a letter from a reader um, about a week ago, and, and he, you know, he just asked me what I thought about the, the possibility of either the president or Congress setting a floor price for oil. In other words, his, his thought was, well, you know, if you could just set a, a floor price, you would tax imports to ensure that the, the, the price in the U.S. for crude oil was no lower than, say, $45. Uh, that would kind of stabilize the industry and stabilize prices and, you know, prevent these boom and bust cycles going forward, right? And it's a concept that has been, you know, brought up uh, several times just during my career since 1979. You know, when we when we go into a big bust in oil prices, uh, it's usually small independent producer groups, uh, you know, decide, well, you know, we need a floor price and they go to Washington and right. try to get the politicians to do it. And frankly, as he pointed out in his note to me, you know, Eisenhower did it via an executive order in the 50s. And so, you know, I thought, well, hey, yeah, you're right. Nobody's talking about that. And uh, it made, made for an interesting, you know, piece, I think. And uh, I, my, my whole deal is, okay, yeah, in concept, it, it's, you know, it should be a workable concept, right? I mean, it sounds simple. Um, but, but in practice... I just don't have any faith in the federal government to manage something like that, you know, and the politics of it are so difficult. Uh, the thing is, small producers and even some midsize independents would probably support something like that. But the big producers don't necessarily support it. Any company that's producing internationally isn't going to support it. Refiners hate the idea because they love low oil prices, right? They, right. they become a lot more profitable when crude prices are low. Manufacturers hate it because so many manufacturers use oil uh, as a feed prop, uh, uh, feedstock for making just <laughs> millions of different products right, right. that we use every day. And, and so the politics of it are really difficult. Um, you could never get it through the Senate and Congress. You could never get 60 votes. And if the president did it via an executive order, my God, the out, outrage you know that would come out of the news media alone would, would right. make us all deaf. So I... You know, I, but it was an interesting concept, and I, I just, you know, I didn't have anything else to write about that day, so I just wrote a piece about it, and, well, you know, I just, it was an interesting thing to think through. Well, I think I mentioned to you off off air, and it's aired on my other podcast now, that I interviewed someone who is a proponent of this, and um, they're up in uh, Amarillo or Lubbock or right. somewhere in North Texas, and this is kind of what they're proposing, and yeah. we were talking about it offline, and, and for me, I, I'm such a free market guy that I want the free market to work itself out, because I, I don't trust, I'm like you, I just don't trust that the government can get it right, they're going to mess it up, or they're going to do something yeah. wrong, but I think one of the things that gets kind of lost in this is, if, if, if you just sit back and you look at it from a pure U.S. standpoint, um, and, and I know that you're not doing that, but you know, sometimes that we as Americans, we only think about America. Um, I was talking to a right. guy from Canada the other day, and so you've got Venezuela, the sanctions that are going to potentially going on there, and their their whole economy is you know collapsing, and they can't export oil. They've got all these problems. Well, Canada is looking at that as a business opportunity to increase their exports to the U.S. Now, 
Um, there, but there is some concern that Trump may put in some kind of tax like this. There's some legislation a while back I think we've spoke about before. Um, and so they're looking at going, well, if the U.S. taxes us, we'd be better off selling it to China. And you go, well, hold on. If the U.S. loses imports from Venezuela, and then instead of getting it from a friendly neighbor from, China, uh, from Canada, they sell to China, we've just kind of cost ourselves all the way around 700,000 <laughs> barrels of oil when we didn't have to. We could have got it from Canada, who we would love to get the oil from, instead of a, you know, a regime like what's going to be in from Venezuela. Right. And, you know, I mean, and of course, what you're talking about there really even goes back to President Trump's energy first, or America first energy plan, which is all about reducing exports from hostile countries and importing more from countries like Canada, right? And we're here in the Western Hemisphere, and we want to get more of their oil, not less of it. Right. Um, That's what I told the guy from Canada. I said, I, I, said, I think you're kind of missing it. I think we're wanting yeah. to get from Canada. And he goes, well, the US, he said that the Canadian producers up there are not interpreting it that way. And I was really stunned to hear that because I thought, well, I'm, from, I'm not a policy expert, but from what I understand, we're wanting to get it from Canada. And, he, and his, his response was, no, that's, that's not what they're hearing in Canada. Um, and so it's hmm. interesting It's interesting because I wasn't expecting that either. I was thinking that this would be good news for the Canadians. Um, and they're like, why, well, why, do, why, does he, why do the Canadians think that Trump is so interested in getting Keys, Keystone XL finished? Yeah, you know, that that was the, the whole thing. point is right. to bring in another 400,000 barrels a day from Canada. Right, right. Well, <laughs> you know, obviously when you're dealing with uh, big governments in any level, there's obviously some posturing going on there. So it may be uh, the Canadian companies are, are positioning themselves for some other play that they have going on. But I just found it interesting to hear that, that I was thinking it would be good news. And they're like, well, maybe, we're a little, but we're a little concerned. And so it was just interesting because, but like you mentioned, you've set this, these kind of floor prices, you bring in these taxes, the impacts on other things that you just don't think about. And uh, as you mentioned, the refineries and what could go on there, um, you know, the refineries are built to, to process a certain type of oil, and uh, you start messing with international trade. It, it, this affects everything that we do in the oil and gas business, really. It's just hard to imagine why the Canadians have that, uh, that impression, but I don't know who they're talking to. Well, David, uh, we, we appreciate you coming on today. For those of you who don't know, David is a uh, contributor to Forbes and obviously to uh, oilprice.com, article we pulled there today. Uh, David, for those who want to follow you, where can they find you? Oh, I have a website where I link to everything I do. It's uh, www.db, my initials, energy update, or I'm sorry, dbdailyupdate.com. Well, again, David, we uh, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, really enjoyed having you. Hope to have you again maybe next week. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks again, David, for coming on the show. We uh, Great stuff, great articles that we went over, very insightful. Uh, it's always good to have David on. Yeah, Josh, I love having him on. He's so knowledgeable, and uh, he's got a good perspective on things. And uh, you know, he's all over the place, so go check out his website. We'll link to that in the show notes and uh, also the book if you're interested on uh, what all we, we discussed there with the show Revolution. It's a fascinating story. If you work through it, you didn't work through it, you want to know, uh, that's the best starting spot that there is. If you're going to be at NAEP, let me know, globalenergymedia.com. And until next time, keep climbing.